It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Highways and public spaces that shape modern New York City were built at the expense of black and Latino New Yorkers. When Robert Moses, an unabashed racist, began building his public projects in the 1920s, he bulldozed black and Hispanic homes to make way for parks. He built highways right through the middle of minority neighborhoods. And when he built the highways leading from the city to the breezy beaches of Long Island, he ordered engineers to make sure those bridges were low enough so that city buses, which would likely carry poor people, would not be able to pass through. Samson Livingston is out all the time digging up stories of Indianapolis buildings and byways. This tour is really about other monuments, like the site of a historic African-American community center active in the 1920s when the Ku Klux Klan essentially ran local government. Center Avenue YMCA was right here. It was once the largest black YMCA in the country. Before this neighborhood around Indiana Avenue was gutted by an interstate and many of its buildings destroyed, Livingston says it was a hub of black entertainment and commerce. But that was in the early 1960s, before the bulldozers uprooted the dogwoods and the oaks, gobbled up wide paved streets, and turned my playmates' homes into rubble. I vividly remember the change in terms that a little boy can understand. Jimmy Don Arnold, who had the largest and best comic book collection, tearfully told me one day he couldn't hang with the fellows anymore because the mysterious they were tearing down his house. William B.G. White's huge front yard where we played pickup football games became a mound of red dirt for an embankment to support an off-ramp to I-77. Was there any successful resistance? Was there any resistance at all? Oh, absolutely. There was certainly successful resistance. We can see Good examples in Greenwich Village in, in New York. There were examples from Washington, D.C., which is where the, the phrase, no white man's roads through black men's homes came from. That was the rallying cry for folks in D.C. Um, who resisted it. And there was also a successful effort in New Orleans. Technology is the villain in Lewis's book. Through most of its first 200 years, the citizenry of New Orleans harbored a healthy fear of floods. Most of the population confined themselves to the high ground and avoided parts of the city that lay below sea level. Then, early in the 20th century, a local engineer named A. Baldwin Wood invented a pump powerful and reliable enough to drain the swamplands and keep them dry even after a heavy rain. 
land once off-limits was now open to settlement, just as high-speed elevators changed the geography of New York City by making skyscrapers possible, Lewis wrote, the wood pump revolutionized the urban geography of New Orleans. The large tracts of marshy land that sat between the central business district and Lake Pontchartrain to the north were the first parts of the city to experience a metamorphosis. Wood's invention allowed speculators to develop Lakeview in the 1910s among other communities there. That part of the city was off-limits to black home buyers, but the wood pump was also used to drain the black A-Town swamps, those downriver from the French Quarter, to expand the Lower Ninth Ward, among other communities. The wood pump allowed New Orleanians to spread out and also to cut themselves off from one another. Technology, Lewis found, accelerated racial segregation rather than slowed it down. The wood pump made New Orleans East possible, but first came the interstate, which did nearly as much to reshape the geography of New Orleans. It would have been unthinkable to build an elevated highway above St. Charles Avenue or Magazine Street, yet that's what happened on the other side of town in the 1960s when the city fathers mapped the I-10 through the center of Treme. A white man's highway through the black man's bedroom, said one critic on the losing end of that fight. The interstate was built directly over Claiborne Avenue, the commercial center of black New Orleans. In its day, Claiborne was a handsome boulevard of large oak trees lined with businesses, most of them black-owned. By the time of Katrina, it was a strip of vacant storefronts under a thick slab of elevated concrete thrumming with traffic. Lewis judged it as nothing short of murder. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Tuesday, May 18, 2021. So I have been told a listener posted May 17, 1954. Big day, Supreme Court decisions about so-called school segregation or desegregation that is important in the context of our discussion for today. Uh, We'll be on today and every day for the remainder of the week. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow, Dr. Ruby Lathan. There are a number of ways you can think about each of the installments of the context of white supremacy. You could think about them as different areas of people activity. Another way you could think about especially today's broadcast tomorrow's broadcast health health impacts racism white supremacy do you have an interstate built over your house where you have to move or do you have an interstate that bifurcates the area where you live and or what sort of access to foods Uh, recreational activities do you have that sort of thing that would be maybe one way you could think about today's broadcast and then tomorrow's broadcast with Dr. Lathan either way same time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific for tomorrow Uh, our broadcast for today many many outlets have been uh, talking about the U.S. interstate highway system 
and these being monuments to racism. The LA Times had a big piece, uh, KCRW, which is uh, California Public Radio, they had numerous uh, segments, New York Public Radio, St. Louis Public Radio, just on and on and on and on and on. Lots of segments uh, where they've been discussing this, uh, not new, but certainly I'd say over the past year or so, lots of conversations uh, about this component uh, of white supremacy racism. Uh, and in fact, even before our guests, plural for today's broadcast, we played the segment which featured Deborah Archer, KCRW, recently, just this year. And they were asking Professor Archer, uh, are there any successes because of the enormity of this? What I just said, it's not like this is just confined to the so-called South. This is New York, California, St. Louis, Indiana, lots of different locations, uh, not confined to one specific uh, area of the U.S. This seems to be uh, a pretty regular tool of displacing, dislocating black people. But they asked Professor Archer, can you think of any successes? Can you think of any times uh, where black people or the non-white people that were going to be displaced uh, because of these highways where they succeeded? And she said yes. She listed some successes and she cited New Orleans specifically and I was stunned because that was yours truly narrating Gary Rivlin's Katrina after the flood. We read that in 2015, 10 years from the Katrina debacle, uh, toxic flood and everything else, the uh, levee failure and all that went with it. White supremacy, racism centrally. Uh, I think that's the theme of Gary Rivlin's work. But I remember because Gary Rivlin gives so much context and I remember that segment specifically because he quotes from Pierce F. Lewis's book, which is celebrated about the history of New Orleans. And he does not cite that as a success by any stretch of the imagination. I remember he's so explicit. He labeled it. He branded it murder. It's no way in the world you can think of that as a victory. But I said, I'll double check with our guests for today because they're way more knowledgeable on this subject matter than myself. But that is important. We got to be truthful uh, about this and the enormity uh, of this problem and how this was used as a weapon of white supremacy racism. Our guests for today, they were recommended one of our investors. Uh, this is his specialty dealing with urban planning and talking about this very important aspect of white supremacy racism uh, there is an eight part series uh, that you can check out uh, it's at the metropole.blog uh, it was published in installments earlier this year not that long ago actually uh, the myth and truth about interstate highways uh, lots of different authors uh, professors who specialize in this area contributed and the enormity I can't emphasize that enough lots of different areas Minnesota Georgia Alabama California all over we're talking about the exact same thing deliberate use of interstate highways to displace terrorize black people he thought it would be awesome uh, if we could get some of the authors to come on the program and chat it up with us to discuss this problem why they wanted to conduct this uh, project uh, just to make sure that we all can be a little bit more informed about just hey the areas and things that we take for granted in fact I'll pause right here to make sure I give proper context in our 12 years at the cows that's one thing we should be able to do context number one James Lowen pulled from our book club again Gary Rivlin Katrina after the flood is one and also sundown towns 
Jerry, or excuse me, James Lowen, importantly in sundown towns, he does catalog the enormous number of events where black people are dislocated and chased out of towns violently often and told not to come back under threat of more white terrorism. But he also importantly talks about how consistently white people lie about these events so that every or at least white people can pretend ignorance about this happened. Remember in sundown towns, he would talk about sometimes you would go to research and you would look and all of the newspaper archives for when events like Rosewood or Tulsa or Kilgore, Texas, or just pick hundreds of these events. Just pick one. Sometimes you go look and there's no evidence at all. Like there's been a deliberate effort to conceal that this happened. That's one for context Two, NDB Connolly. Great book and so appropriate for today's program. A World More Concrete. Outstanding book on white supremacy racism. It's specific to Florida, but it would certainly apply to many other locales. A World More Concrete. He said specifically in talking about sundown towns and white terrorism and mobs of white people go in and kill all the black people and boot them out of town. He said that that's really Neanderthal white supremacy just like your iPhone you have upgrades there are much more efficient means of looting property from black people dislocating black people building a highway much like hmm, property taxes that would be another means of efficiently dislocating black people there's no blood on anyone's hands we just had to build a highway little bit of context as we move forward the segment we're discussing again the myth and truth about interstate highways uh, the lead author I'll say of the series although there are many contributors and we'll hear from several of them we'll see lead contributor uh, PhD uh, professor Sarah Joe Peterson uh, let's see Sarah Joe Peterson are you with us Oh, yes, I am. Thank you. Spectacular. So good to have you with us this evening. Uh, Let's see. We'll start with you and then we'll see other folks who who joined us uh, who we have on the line as well. And then we'll be able to have a kind of group discussion about things and take some questions. Kind of starting with Sarah Joe Peterson, I guess for our listeners who who did not check out uh, the report, Outstanding Information, can you tell a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Oh, yes. Um, I am an independent transportation consultant. Which and I also have a PhD in history, which is a little unusual. I have a background in urban planning and a background in history, and I was, and um, so this project became very, very real to me when I realized that the histories that I had been reading and pounding on and even teaching to my students had lied to me, <laughs> and I discovered it while doing some research and um, and uh, for a organization that's called the Transportation Research Board. It's a a unit of the National Academies, and I'm in their papers, and their papers tell a very, very different story than the official history had been telling me. And um, and one of and this story is bigger. It's it's actually bigger than race. It's a hiding of everything that was going on about the interstate. and including Black Americans. It's so it's and I don't know if it's almost like they had to just 
create an entire invention about what happened on the interstate to hide what happened to black Americans, but just to happen what, what happened in cities. And um, so that's where the myth and the truth comes from. And I, would you like quickly, the myth is, it's what the stories that the transportation professionals were telling themselves. Um, and this, the myth gets invented in the 1970s, and it just carries on and carries on until the historians start telling the truth. And the historians start telling the truth sometime 1990s, 2000s, that those stories come back. And the myth is that the interstates were never intended to go into cities. Never intended to go into cities. They're interstates. They're about connecting states. And the official histories literally say this. And therefore, that lets all the highway professionals off the hook because they then go on and say, all the bad things that happened around the interstate were unintended. That um, And sort of like, oops, we made a mistake. And the bad things were what happened to the displaced communities, but it also happened, but also um, that, you know, have to be able to hide things like a million people were displaced with the interstate. And that's a lot of people. But all of that was sort of unintended, you know. And it's just obviously not true. And you can go back to the old planning documents. You can go, the, you know, and look at them. And they were clearly going to build the interstates in the cities from the very, very beginning. And they had sophisticated understandings of what that meant. And I could also show that, that the good guys in this story, and there are some people who tried to do the right thing, they actually worried about what would happen to the people who were displaced. And they worried specifically about what would happen with the people who were going to have problems with it. And they specifically identify black Americans as a group that's going to have problems if the interstate comes through their neighborhood because they won't be able to easily relocate. They won't be able to easily relocate their businesses. They won't be able to easily relocate the community institutions. And you can show them worrying about it. And then by 1976, the official word is, oops, we made a mistake. We wouldn't do that again. And so that's, in a nutshell, the myth and the truth about the interstate highway. Sarah Jo Peterson, Ph.D. Uh, you can check out her report or the different installments. She and uh, many, many, many contributors uh, to the segment. I thought that was very important for listeners. We'll get into some of the details as we proceed. Uh, in her response, she said, bigger than race, not even racism, bigger than race important uh, as we proceed uh, for folks who have not uh, seen you or this might be their first time hearing from you uh, are you a white woman yes I am okay. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin mm. so. fascinating fascinating <laughs> for uh, were you still in Wisconsin at the time of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer all the cannibalism and such uh, yeah I was actually yikes, <laughs> that, yikes. Uh, yeah not just random because most of his victims were black people, uh, black misandry. We talked about, in fact, we talked about that in the context of, wow, perhaps he was able to last so long because he, like the interstate highways, were targeting predominantly black people. But anyway, Wisconsin, Hi. Sarah Jo Peterson, white woman, Ph.D., Sarah Jo Peterson. Uh, for this broadcast, uh, context of white supremacy, uh, I think it's very important uh, definition. 
some of your contributors definitions are very important uh, when we get to these issues uh, for this program we start every broadcast uh, the definition for racism uh, we use on this program I use the same definition for racism uh, as I do for white supremacy the definition I use for those two terms is a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that's an accurate definition? Uh, yes, and pretty much accurate, yes. Any any portion of it that you'd say, oh, that's maybe slightly inaccurate or could be improved? Well, I think some of them are don't recognize they're dedicated, <laughs> but they're still helping the system perpetuate itself. But... Um, Okay. Some of them don't. Was that was there anything else, or was that it? That yeah. No, I mean I think that's, that's that's certainly what you see around the interstate highways. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's even that that is interesting as well. I'll point out for our uh, non-white listeners, and that's going to come up. Ooh, my goodness, that is going to come up today. I love it. That's one of the main points that I contend, even though I didn't say anything about that in my definition. Are there individuals classified as white who are not aware of racism, white supremacy, even though they might be helping to contribute to it? Are they doing this unawares? Is that possible? Is that logical in a system of white supremacy? Just getting our non-white listeners to think about that rhetorically. There was a non-white male. He published a report about five years ago at this point. Uh, He was talking specifically about racism, and he said... white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism but rarely are they pained enough and I've been asking our white guests over the years the first portion of that sentence do you think just based on your studies uh, you're, you're a white woman yourself the white people that you've been around do you think that a substantial number of individuals classified as white are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism no (sighs) I don't think they are love it love it I just say that for our listeners I've said this a few times over the years if we're using a boxing metaphor that question is like my range finder let's see how honest this white person is going to be We've had a lot of white people. In my view, they've not been honest. It is kind of rare to just get a white person to just give a straight no. And in my view, that's not very tough because it's so obvious that has to be true because racism is still a big problem. So if they were really upset, then, hey, no George Floyd. We could have been doing something else over the last year. It doesn't seem like that big a thing to acknowledge, but apparently it is. But we got to know Sarah Joe Peterson, PhD, and no pussyfooting. I love it. If we can have that level of honesty for the discussion, I will be tickled. Um, let's see, before we get to 
some I told you my starter question. Oh, before I even get to my starter question, because that's important, too. Before I even get to my starter question, we've had so many people on from all over the world. This is important, given the context. Um, if I may ask, if you don't want to, you know, I don't try to give out people's medical information, but given the context of COVID-19 and everything, are you vaccinated? Are you waiting? Where are you at on, on that whole situation? I am vaccinated twice and two weeks out and so happy. <laughs> wow. Wow. So you, according to the new CDC rules, you're one of the folks you are totally liberated. You can go high five everybody, burn all your masks and, you know, go back to having fun. Have you been doing so? Um, I'm still wearing masks in stores and places because they require them, but I think I still would anyway, just so people who aren't vaccinated yet can feel comfortable. Oh, Oh, so you're not even cutting a fool, um, as they've said. Okay, all right. Respond, but you are fully vaccinated, fully vaccinated, but still masking yeah. cautiously. Okay, right on. Uh, to my starter question, very important, and then we'll, uh, as once I get you kind of give a little bit about your first essay, then we'll push off and bring in some of the other folks who contributed and get our questions in from listeners as well. Um, my starter question that I emailed, uh, if you could kind of tell us, because you said you are an independent urban planner which is important if you can kind of tell us what a cough there if you can tell us your academic background like the classes and things that you took to get to this level in your career in urban planning and specifically how many I I think I said in the email non-white I want to be even more specific since this has such an impact on black people in this part of the world how many black students have you black classmates like I mean have you encountered in the classes that you took along the way in your career in urban planning is that uh, yes I am currently independent and I specialize in transportation research and then people hire me to work on a project for them and um, so that's I have my urban planning degree I was from back in the early 1990s in at the University of Wisconsin and it's interesting because when I was going through the course there was not actually any transportation planning courses we in this country which is I think some reasons why the issues around equity and race are coming up is we've had an incredible renaissance in the last 10-15 years around transportation and transportation planning bringing in a whole bunch of group of new voices and um, and they're all younger than me because I came through in a generation that was very white and very male. And um, and so it's very exciting to see what's happened in my field. So um, when I went through planning school and planning programs, they're at the master's degree level, most of them, and they're usually pretty small. You know, like a program with 25 students in it would be a fairly big program. And I would say the black students would be in the single digits. Like not, not even single digits. I mean, like one or two in them. And I, but one of the gentlemen I did go through actually turned up writing a piece for us on Milwaukee. So it was great to see his name again. And so, but yeah, we're talking single. Very, they would have been all alone during that time. The Black Americans who were sort of the first to get in that generation going in through urban planning, they would have probably been alone in the classroom of white students in their late 80s, early 90s. not fun yikes uh okay so then from i guess from the academic side uh how many black professors uh have you had in this field over your career um 
I actually went and thought about my entire education from kindergarten to my PhD, and the answer is zero. Well, all righty then. No <laughs> ambiguity there. Yeah. I like, yeah, I was like, you know, this is, it was, it's not very pretty, but that's the answer. And I think um, I have had, I'm not living there now, but I've had the privilege of living in Washington, D.C., and that's really where I was able to learn from my fellow black professionals and community leaders and neighbors. But until then, I was a white girl from small town Wisconsin. Hmm. All righty. Fascinating. And Dr. Reuben L. Anthony Jr., black male in this yeah. field, work with you on the project. Oof, wonder what, man, yeah. that would be interesting to hear what his experience was like if he was one of the single uh, going through in this type of program, if he's in your similar age range or so. Um, before yeah. I get to your uh, report, I want to make sure I don't forget my question. Now, I said when they spoke with Deborah Archer, they asked her, hey, have there been some successes? And she said, New Orleans. And I said, hmm. I didn't hear New Orleans as a success in terms of U.S. interstate highways versus so-called black communities. That not just a loss. That was, in fact, it was a loss because Gary Riblin referred to them as losers. And he said specifically, Pierre F. Lewis called it murder. So I guess according to your studies is New Orleans. Is there any way that could be described as a victory with regards to U.S. interstate highways and black people? Well, it was a victory for white people. I don't think it, no. I think she may have misunderstood the question because the traditional history about New Orleans is that, that it is the first success story as far as stopping an interstate highway that was planned to be built is in New Orleans. But it's not the part through the black neighborhoods. It was the part that was supposed to run through the white neighborhoods that they stopped. So I think that answers your question. I mean, I, I think I am as confused by that as you are by her by her claim. But maybe something has happened later. I don't know. But in the late 60s, that's not what happened. Katrina happened later, but I don't think I would classify that <laughs> as a victory for black people either. But uh, I was very pu- – and just the reason that I pointed that out when I first heard that report, I was puzzled. Because I said, man, I know quite a bit about New Orleans, and that is not a victory at all. And then when I went back and looked at the information, I was even more puzzled. Uh, and it's been my opinion. We talked about lies, lying about the interstate system. It's been my experience many times, as opposed to just being truthful. I've had zero black professors since kindergarten. I'm not going to try and pretty it up and pretend there was a custodial worker who hung out in the classroom sometimes. And he kind of ended Just tell the truth. If it's no there aren't any success stories or if there are it wasn't for black people maybe white people were able to say environmental racism and they want just tell the truth that's what we need in order to solve this problem not at minimum if you're a professor and you're giving out inaccurate information like we got enough of that same thing with the report saying that white people are often sincerely pained by racism that's not true there's way too much giving out false information about racism white supremacy that's why we have this problem Giddick's beautiful segue, the U.S. interstate highway system and the report titled uh, The Myth and Lies 
or excuse me, the myth and truth, sorry, the myth and truth about the interstate highways. Uh, and you always kind of gave us a starter uh, for what you were hoping to accomplish uh, with the project. I'll read a little bit. In fact, I'll give a little bit uh, to kind of go back to what we were talking about before in terms of can white people be poorly informed about racism, white supremacy? Can they not know and still contribute? I'll read a little bit for listeners. This is from your report. You write Weiner's key studies and more are now online for all to see five reports, two published before 1956 and three shortly after show that in no sense was the interstate interstate system intended only for intercity travel. Moreover, the assertion that the consequences of the interstates in urban areas were unintended, at least for what they call the total transportation needs of the metropolis and the displacement of minority communities is untenable. Top leaders anticipated these impacts and yet the efforts they made to address them fell short. One glaring moral weakness of both inter excuse me, interregional highways and the guide is that both barely acknowledge that these urban expressways would require massive acts of eminent domain. If noted at all, they are mostly concerned with how to reduce the costs of land acquisition. Interregional highways imagines itself in battle with a nefarious enemy. That word enemy comes up in these reports repeatedly. And we're just talking about U.S. citizens, U.S. citizens who are being displaced from their homes, but somehow they end up being described as enemies. Anywho, uh, the land speculator, the guide gives two sentences to the recognition that families and businesses will be displaced. Although one of those sentences is a prescient warning, failure to plan for relocation in advance may result in unfavorable public relations and delay the program. Last little bit, like the Sagmore Conference, the committee directly confronted the problems of displacement and the interstates. Coleman Woodbury dedicated a section to research needed on the relocation of displaced families and land uses. He observed that the urban highway programs were dealing with relocation in a more or less ad hoc catch as can fashion and warned that Negroes, Negroes listed first, Puerto Ricans and other low income rural in migrants would face many difficulties finding other accommodations because of racial and ethnic segregation practices, their low incomes and other characteristics. Yes, they knew. The highway industry anticipated the problems for urban transportation and for relocation that came with bringing expressways into urban areas. Of course they did. To believe the myth is to believe that these highway leaders, hundreds of people across every state highway department and the federal government were stupid. These men, and they were nearly all men and nearly all white, may have been many things, but stupid is not one of them. I will stop there. Uh, I think this is very important in general for racism. White supremacy is 
not the product of stupidity. But just can you really emphasize the enormity of this? Because this is one of those where they can't just say, oh, well, this is just a problem. It's so bad. It happened in the South. This is the whole country. It's the whole country. It's every. It's almost everywhere they built an urban interstate. It's more like we need to do research to see if anybody actually did a good job. <laughs> I mean, like, actually cared. But, um, but yeah, we we don't know. Well, I mean, we don't know that we don't know enough about what went wrong to in the specifics that happened everywhere. But. Um, but I think and some of it is very, very, very intentional. You know, um, one of the women who participated, her name's Becky Retzloff. She's done some fantastic research in Alabama. And in there, it's just very clear that the white supremacists had taken over the state highway department and they, and they aimed them at the black middle class neighborhood. And in other places, it was more like the system, every domino in the system lined up so that to hit the black neighborhood. And that was a little harder to understand. But one of the things, and just, and that's why it's everywhere because it's systemic. The system is get set up to, to, as I said, line up the bulldozers like they're dominoes heading to the black neighborhood. And part of the reason why that is, is is because they're trying to reach the downtown. So they're going to have to take out neighborhoods to do it. And the other reason that it is, is because um, they feel under a lot of pressure to build the interstates very quickly. They have a budget and they have a deadline and they have to get this massive thing built very fast. And then, so this lines it all up so that they're going to go to the neighborhoods that are the path of least resistance. And that's going to be the neighborhoods who don't, who can't just call the governor and complain, who can't threaten to have their city planner and their city council member kicked out of office. And so those are going to be the neighborhoods that exactly the people are worried about. The black, black neighborhoods, the Puerto Rican neighborhoods, neighborhoods full of rural immigrants, those are the neighborhoods that are going to be the path of least resistance. And um, so that's, and then the final, the one that just kills me to think that this happened is that in 1956, we're going to build the interstate. Congress says, yes, we're going to build them. We're going to build them fast and we're going to build them all at once and everywhere. And, um, and to get this to happen, the federal government is going to pick up 90% of the cost of building them. The state highway departments build them, but the federal government pays them to do it. And one of the things that the federal government will not pay for is the cost of relocating people, giving the state highway departments every single incentive to cut every cost, and there's no one looking over their shoulders when they do it because the federal government doesn't pay for relocation of people or businesses or community organizations. So that's why it's everywhere, because it is truly every single incentive is set up. Context of white supremacy. Again, Sarah Jo Peterson, Ph.D. Uh, I want to interrogate uh, your response, or I guess I'll interrogate it 
this way. And even going back to what she said before, it's bigger than race. Noting she didn't say racism. She said it's bigger than race in her earlier response. Um, when you're saying it's it's everywhere. I, <laughs> when we talk about racism, white supremacy, and people say it's everywhere, either meaning in the entire universe, known universe, or in the entire United States. That I mean, wow. <laughs> it's very few things that are everywhere. Like, wow. Going and using highways to destroy and obliterate where black people live and or operate businesses and having that be everywhere. When I put that in the context of, as I said, James Lowen's book, Sundown Towns uh, and or N.D.B. Connolly's book, even though it's specific to Florida, I'm not surprised that that's everywhere because the sundown towns were everywhere as well. Uh, in terms of restricting where black people could buy houses, live, and that sort of thing. So once I begin to, to have an accurate grasp, context of history, what it means to be classified as white, I'm not surprised about this. And then even what you said about being incentivized, hey, we don't pay for relocation. So now it's, uh-oh, somebody's going to be really mad if they have to move and they're not being compensated. Let's see, who who has the least ability to, oh, and or put in context where I want to push back on this and say, man, this looks like if I'm a racist white supremacist and I'm going to get federal money to build a highway and this is 1956, 1957, something else is happening that would have my attention at this time. Oh, what we just talked about, Brown versus Board of Education. If I'm disgruntled about that and a Rosa Parks, an E.D. Nixon has got on my nerves. Oh, Let's just put a highway where their house is and we'll call it a day. Your response? Uh, that's pretty much what happened in Alabama. That's what I mean. If if we're in a system of white supremacy racism and I'm classified as white and this black person has got on my nerves and we could just build a house, uh, excuse me, build a highway over their house or school or business or neighborhood like wow that makes the context of things I think pretty crystal uh, in my view I guess just to to get to the class component I want to hop out even this is not even in your series because this was this topic is discussed in so many places the LA Times you mentioned class before and I think this is important because many times people say it's not racism you know it's a class issue and they just went after poor people in general and that sort of thing the L.A. Times report is titled L.A. Freeways are the most racist California monuments. It reads these efforts took many forms, most famously racially restrictive covenants, which barred African-Americans and other ethnic minorities by deed from living in houses and neighborhoods deemed white, where covenants failed to keep the races separate and unequal. Rising Ku Klux Klan violence targeted African-American families who attempted to integrate bombings cross burnings and even drive by shootings way before the Crips and Bloods were largely successful in keeping people of color out of the white communities like Eagle Rock in Northeast Los Angeles. Then there was Manhattan Beach, which seized the homes of every African-American property owner in town by eminent domain and raised them. The city then turned the land into a whites only park. Officials justified these actions as slum clearance intended to upgrade the city's supposedly crumbling housing stock 
but their racially malign intent was obvious laid bare when officials moved the Santa Monica freeway so that it ran directly through the stately African-American middle-class neighborhood of Sugar Hill. Anything but a slum wiping it off the map. Another murder. Can you talk about the class components? Because it seems I read that a number of times as well. Even if you were a black person who was not poor and broke, highways could come for you too. That, um, yes. Um, I think we need to know a lot more of how that happens, specifically in specific cities. But um, as I mentioned, we do know that in um, in Montgomery, they did target the black middle class neighborhood. And to be and to get the more context, actually, the um, organizations, the black the black neighbors, the NAACP, they actually write to the federal government and protest. They the they don't all go they don't all get surprised by the sheriffs evicting them someday they they see it coming they start to protest they have some some success in changing things maybe a little maybe not it you have to just really look at the details of the cases um but oftentimes um and i think some of our others we, um, the other people come after me can talk more specifically about their case but in a lot of cases it was the black middle-class neighborhoods who are also in the city that, um, so the middle-class neighborhoods, they were middle-class neighborhoods. That's where they were. They were in the cities. They were near downtown. So they became an easy target. So it becomes easy to deny. Oh, I'm just trying to reach downtown and this is the best way to do it. And, you know, and the truth of the matter is the country did actually, as a country decide that we should bring the urban interstates into the cities and try to get them closer to downtown. So somebody's neighborhood was going to was going to go. So the next question comes to me is, okay, how well did you treat the people who were going to have to sacrifice for this country? The country makes a big decision. We're going to bring the urban interstates into the cities. Somebody's homes and businesses and community institutions are going to be in the way of the bulldozers. How well did we treat them? How well did we compensate them? How well do we help them? How did we? And we have almost no information really especially about what happened to the businesses how many people lost their businesses you know we don't think about that we think about the houses but people who had businesses and um and that's something we really need more research on understanding how well we treated the people who as a country we asked to sacrifice for the greater good I guess just to, again, put that in in context, I think the reason and I could be totally in error that there's no data on how the the businesses, how did they how did they do? Did they close down and how these people were treated and all that is because they're not viewed as human beings. That's what I said. If I'm looking at this in context, this is at the same time of massive resistance. Yes. The resistance happens, it builds. It builds and builds and builds. And so the massive resistance tends to happen more in the 60s. So they have about five-year head start. The highway departments have about five, six years head start before they hit a lot of resistance. And then they just keep building that. Um, but the resistance on the highway, yes. As far as, as the resistance against Brown v. Board of Ed and integration, oh, yeah, there's resistance all over the country. That is true. So, right. Yeah. That's the that, uh, 
the latter context is what I admit I should have been more specific. Massive resistance in terms of white people dedicated to white supremacy saying, oh, no, no little nigger children oh, yeah. are going to school with that. That's what I mean. So in that context, th- I mean, who's going to be compensating these people? We're spending we in Virginia. They closed public schools for five years as in Prince Edward County, as opposed to having black children in school with them. So who's going to in that sort of environment, who's going to stop and say, oh, man, the poor Negroes are being booted out of their neighborhood, eminent domain. We, we're so concerned about them. I, I mean, it's I feel like the callousness is just not uh, evidenced correctly in terms of what what the white mindset would have been about these individuals who at that time would have just been, I mean, being truthful, Negroes, the Negroes are going to have to move. That would have been it, right? In some places. And see, this is where, because I, you know, this is where I think, well, not every state's going to be the same. And, um, but also I think we know that some people cared because they left it in the record. They're trying to, they're speaking to each other and they're trying to rally each other to do the right thing and at least compensate these people better and at least deal with their um, businesses, help with the businesses. They're very concerned about businesses. And so there are, the white people are not all the same, but whether they're going to actually stop the interstates, obviously not. That doesn't happen until the late 60s. They are going to raise, some, the good guys are going to raise the issues, but they're not willing to stop the interstate. They're not willing to, like, go to Eisenhower and say, we need to stop this all right now and fix this. They're not. That, um, so there's, but there's a range of white people in this. And we know in the record, as you read some of the quotes, that there were some people who were worried about it. They were raising the red flag. They were worried about what's going to happen to these communities and these business owners and the homeowners and the community institutions. But their worrying doesn't, doesn't, isn't enough is a way to say it. They can't stop the bulldozers fast enough. That, um, Statistically insignificant. And, and I would even, I just, I have a pause because I mean, we are all living with the after results, like massive displacement of black people. I think you said at the beginning, over a million people displaced. Like how how much sympathy and, and time should be devoted to white people who allegedly said something, raised a cry, but ultimately were futile, ineffective, lame in their efforts to stop this. How much how much glory should we reserve for these white people? I don't know that we should give them any glory, but um, it's important for the transportation professionals and the city leaders to understand what went wrong in a very specific way. Understand that someone writing this in a report, it's important that they couldn't, first of all, the documents in the report, make sure they can't deny that this didn't happen. Obviously, it did happen. People were worried about it. They're worried about it in advance. White people were worried about it in advance. You can't pretend it didn't happen. But also it's important, and it's probably not the big picture that you're talking about. That's, you know, the big picture is, yeah, they failed. But for, and one of my audiences is the people who work in transportation and who work in city government. And understanding exactly how it wasn't enough is important for them, why it wasn't enough, how it wasn't enough, because they also right today have to ask themselves, am I doing enough? Or am I just being the good guy from the 1950s 
who wrote it in the report and then walked away. So it depends on who you're talking to the story. That I'm not holding these people up as heroes. They failed. You know, they didn't get to go to Eisenhower. They didn't go to President Eisenhower and say, we need to stop this. But they knew about it, which is important instead of denying it. They actually did know about it. And their worrying wasn't enough. Where, you know, a lot of white people in charge today, a lot of white people saying all the right things, writing all the right memos. When is it not enough? Like, they need to understand that. But that's different than understanding sort of the, the sort of what you would teach in high school or what you would teach in college. This is about speaking to professionals and understanding when they're, when, what it looks like and why it failed. Two quick points that I, I, I want to make. Words so important. Um, some words just because I don't tend to use these words for anybody. Um, you said that you're not trying to hold these people up but you keep referencing them as good guys. That would seem to be some sort of holding them up at least. And incidentally, I'm just pointing out for listeners. I don't generally reference anybody, even Edie Nixon, Rosa Parks, Dr. Martin Luther King. I generally don't even refer to them as good guys or good gals. Uh, They would just be victims. It's hard for me to find so-called good guys or good gals in the system of white supremacy. That would be one. The other is, I think it's very important. Words are so important. I think Dr. Tierra, uh, Dr. Tierra Bills is with us. She's on deck. I have one more question, but the other important point I wanted to get in, uh, you keep saying, uh, Sarah Jo Peterson, that it failed. It failed or what went wrong. In my view, if we're going to be accurate, about all of this, I think it needs to under, be understood as this worked exactly as it was intended. That's the way that this needs to be understood in a system of white supremacy at a time when white people all across the country were saying we do not want black people in school with our children. Many, many white people banded together and used interstates weaponized the construction of U.S. interstate highways to demolish, as you said, displace uh, displace a million citizens, many of them black people, non-white people, and did so deliberately and the ongoing ramifications. That's that's not an oops. That's not an accident. That is exactly as it was intended. That's the way it should be understood, at least in my view. The question that I wanted to ask is, uh, and I could be in error, but the question that I wanted to ask, just from your title uh, of your report, words I think are very important. Uh, you use the term myth, the myth and, and truth about interstate highways. Do you think the term myth or lie is more accurate? Um, well, there are a lot of lies told. But they became, you know, in the transportation profession, they started to be treated as myths in a way that, but actually, I mean, if I could write it again, I might, I mean, I think your point's well taken on that, that, that some of these were very specific lies that, um, and that I may have been soft peddling this a little for my audience. That um, that they'd sort of taken on a larger larger myth type of thing, but they were specifically these were stories that were invented in the 1970s to cover the tracks and point the fingers away at other people from the late 1950s. 
people in the 1970s invented these stories. That um, as it just to speak of the good guys, I'm using that a little bit sarcastically. <laughs> My problem is, is we have 50 different states and they don't all behave the same. And so we certainly had people who saw themselves as the good guys, whether we would, and that's who I'm referring to. And that you can see this in the documents as they're arguing about their concerns about these things. That, um, that, um, so that's what I mean by it, that these are the people who, in a, in a spectrum of behavior, weren't, were, were at least raising an issue. It doesn't mean and I clearly don't think they did enough. So, um, so that's a little sarcastic, I guess. But I should be careful about speaking in that way, too. Uh, that would be my view. Uh, and just in my yeah. view, that's both of those equally are parts of the problem. There is a grand effort to find so-called good white people. That is a waste of time. It's inaccurate as opposed to we have white people who are dedicated to racism, white supremacy. And I'm even I'm slightly taken aback. What I read your reports and beyond, I do see the exact same thing everywhere. The black people got displaced, period, in droves. That exact same for that to happen everywhere, regardless if they use slightly different languaging or you had maybe a few white people who gave lip service. To, oh, this is messed up. We shouldn't do this. It looks like the exact same thing happened pretty much everywhere. The other component of it, uh, the myth or lie there right alongside the compulsion to find a good white person. Even if we got to dig up John Brown from 200 years ago, right along with that. There is an unwillingness to just say white people lie. In fact, they lie a lot in support of white supremacy racism. In fact, that's one of the main ways that individuals classified as white practice racism, white supremacy. Then I want to say that they will come up with all these other ways to obfuscate uh, and pussyfoot. If we say myth, at least to me, if we're talking about myths, I mean, they celebrate myths. You know, we're talking about the Iliad and the Odyssey and all of that they make movies about you know some mythologies and all that that's that that pretties it up a little bit that's not what we're talking about we're talking about deliberate lying uh, exactly what I said James Lowen when you talk about somebody going into a news archive and deliberately story, uh, destroying news footage so people don't know that an event happened that's not a myth I am deliberately trying to deceive people and it's the same thing frequently with white people practicing racism lie not myths or other ways of pussyfitting one of my favorite words that happens a lot in this system i said dr uh tiara bills on deck i think the other folks who dialed in i guess you have to press star uh star six one so i can pick out that's the only name that's like oh that's one of the co-authors right there dr tiara bills are you with us dr tiara bills yes i'm here can you hear me Yes, ma'am. Uh, for our listeners, if they let me give them the title of your re uh, report specifically, uh, and then you can give us some background information on who you are, the work that you do. Her report, a part of this eight part series, A Contemporary Path to Transportation Justice. And she's talking about the Minnesota area. So thankful to have you with us, Dr. Bills. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Did you want to give us background um, information? Yes, yes, sorry. Yeah, so I, um, I'm an assistant professor at Wayne State University in Detroit. 
Um, I'm also a born and raised Detroiter. And um, about my background, so I I teach in the civil engineering department, but I'm coming from an engineering background um, in, in transportation engineering. And my work is focused on an area of transportation uh, research that um, looks at people's transportation choices, how they make choices, and how those choices are affected by changes in the transportation system or transportation options. So, for example, if we um, if we build a highway extension or if we build a new public transit service, um, you know, how are people going? Are, are people going to ride the system? Are they going to change their travel behavior in some way? Um, so, so that's the type of work that I do, and and the theme is really transportation equity. So, looking at how um, how black and and low income and um, elderly and um, you know otherwise vulnerable travelers are going to be impacted by transportation changes. And so that's really what has brought me to um, to this topic. On another note, um, you know I actually have a personal connection to one of these events of displacement that happened in Detroit, and, and this is the case of the, this, the, um, the uh, dislocation of residents of, of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. Um, so my grandmother and her family, her eight siblings and parents, they live uh, on Hastings Street in Detroit, um, across from St. Jehovah's Jehovah, uh, Jehovah Church, which is still there. And so... Um, you know, members of my family were actually displaced by one of these events in order to make way for I-75 Chrysler Freeway in Detroit. Um, and so, you know, I, I was listening in on on your conversations about the sheer magnitude of these events across the United States, and um, you know, the, the scale varies. You know, from city to city. One of the things I found about Detroit was just you know, there are so many black residents displaced who make way for um, for the Chrysler Freeway and also what is now the medical district in Detroit. Um, so, I mean, around this time, which is, you know, late 1950s, early 1960s, um, you know, the, popu- the black population in Detroit has swelled to nearly 300,000 persons. And so we're talking about a neighborhood um, that's very, very dense, that's full of not just residents but businesses. Um, Dr. Peterson, you, you talked about the businesses that were um, displaced. You know, there were over 300 businesses that were um, raised in order to make way for this section of the, the interstate. And so, I mean, just the sheer magnitude, we're talking about, you know, imagine if, you know, the entire city of St. Louis or the entire city of, of Orlando, Florida, or, or Cincinnati um, were, like, if the entire city was just wiped out in order to make way for some piece of infrastructure, that's essentially what happened in Detroit. Um, but anyway, my article is not actually about Detroit. <laughs> um, but it, it, the, the, the piece that I contributed, um, you know, there, there are two main takeaways. One is that, um, you know, it, it highlights the, the, the story of, Rondo in St. Paul, and this was a largely um, black community. Um, nearly 80% of black residents of St. Paul in the 1950s lived in this neighborhood of Rondo. And, um, you know, this was a, a story of a community that was 
that was affected in the ways that we discussed. But another, you know, important thing that this piece highlights is that there are ongoing cases um, and, and efforts um, today to try and right some of these past wrongs. Um, and, and, I, and I do say try because I, I, I don't think that they're, you know, that, 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 that these cases are as widespread as the harms that were done, you know, so there's certainly lots of work to be done. But there are lots of cases like Reconnect Rondo, like um, Connect Oakland um, in, in Oakland, California. These are efforts um, to, to, uh, to raise uh, dollars to improve infrastructure and, and essentially reconnect these communities to uh, amenities that, that they were cut off from, um, you know, all those decades ago. And so this piece talks about the um, ongoing efforts of the Reconnect Rondo organization uh, to raise funds to build various types of infrastructure, namely a land bridge um, over a portion of I-94 um, in St. Paul. And this would be a way, I mean, there, there are lots of other activities around this effort, but this one physical piece of infrastructure would be a way to, um, to reconnect this community of Rondo that was long cut off from um, you know, opportunities and amenities in uh, more central St. Paul um, as a way to sort of try and bridge the gap and to, um, to, to reconnect, literally reconnect um, these residents to uh, opportunities, improve accessibility, and, and so on. And so, um, so that's what this piece covers. And, and, and I really hope that the takeaway is that, you know, we, we need to talk about what happened in, in, you know, in the 1950s and 1950s. We need to talk about that. We also need to understand the magnitude of the impact. For Rondo, there was a study done by the Urban Land Institute, and they, um, they calculated that the loss of homes, there were 700 homes that were lost. The loss of homes um, and the value of those homes, the equity in those homes, is equivalent to about $150 million today. And that's from 700 homes. Um, you know, if, if we knew that same metric for all of the other homes and businesses from across the country, you know, we're talking about a, a huge amount of money that could have gone to the descendants of, of these homeowners and business owners and residents. Um, we're talking about money that could have fund, funded education opportunities that could have supported health um, um, you know, health costs, and, and there's so many other things. We're talking about for these um, for these residents, you know, a loss of generational wealth that's just, you know, beyond what I think most of us understand today. So I, that's that's the, the takeaway from this piece. Context of white supremacy. Uh, Dr. Tierra Bills, um, Wow, we had to wait a little bit, but that was worth the wait. Um, for our listeners, I guess I should have said this before, but it should be obvious you are black female. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Um, wow, you gave so much. I guess to backtrack, um, you, you made it clear your uh, report, uh, A Contemporary Path to Transportation Justice, is not about your family's victimization in the Michigan area. Uh, it's about the <laughs> Rondo right. situation in Minnesota. I, um... Yeah. Um, just, I guess, to, to backpedal a little bit, uh, 
your family situation in Michigan, since we were talking about this before, when they relayed this to you and the trauma of this event and how it impacted you personally. Like, and I, I so appreciate that. Like, this is not just academic work. Like I'm not just in my office here and studying and what had like, this is real world. This has an impact on many, many people, including, you know, me, yours truly. Um, when your family members talk about this incident and relate to you what happened and you began to study this, did you identify any good people, good people that would be classified as white specifically? Um, well, you know, I, I can't say that um, I can't say that I've heard any stories from my grandparents or, or elder aunts about specific persons. Um, they do talk about how while all of this was going, there was just there was there was such unrest in the city. Um, you know, there there was there was a battle going on between black residents and police forces and local government. Um, there were several um, events that happened in the community. The stories circulated about you know children being utilized by um, police, and and so those are the types of stories that I heard. There, there were, weren't any specific. You know names or, or or persons that that I can recall, but um, in terms of the stories that I've heard and and also interviews, I mean, there's a website called RiseUpDetroit.org, and you can go there and hear interviews from persons who, um, you know, who are alive and remember being in Black Bottom Detroit and Paradise Valley, walking down the streets, um, you know, going into the businesses and, and entertainment. Um, uh, uh, establishments and you know just you know they, they they talk about the community that was there that existed you know this was a whole community this was a whole you know sort of ecosystem these were generations of of families and um, there's one interview on on that website that I was looking at recently um, and this young lady talks about how she was in her bed she was sleeping in her bed and there were bricks coming in to her windows as they began to demolish adjacent apartments and structures. And so, you know, this is, these, these types of stories are still very much in the collective memory of many Detroiters today. And I, and I think, in my opinion, it still affects us. It still affects, um, you know, apprehensiveness about other projects that are introduced. Um, you know, any major... Uh, federally or state-funded, um, you know, infrastructure um, change. I think that it brings skepticism because of this, and because it's, it's still a very real, um, uh, you know, part of, 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 like I said, our living and collective memories for for Black Detroiters. Rise up, Detroit. Dot O-R-G. Uh, just tweeted it out. Uh, rise up Detroit dot O-R-G. Uh, I'm making the point because I am not being facetious. I'm being super serious, like gentrification serious. Uh, I didn't see any posts. I gave a brief glance. Rise up Detroit dot O-R-G. I didn't see any videos about good white people. I'm just making that a point of emphasis because it was emphasized today and it gets emphasized often. Good white people. I don't even know what that means. Apparently that's not emphasized on riseupdetroit.org. 
either, unless I've been mistaken. Uh, Dr. Tierra Bills, uh, I asked the same question to Sarah Jo Peterson, PhD, uh, in your studies. So on your journey to getting to this point in urban planning, how many uh, black classmates did you have? Yeah, so thank you for the question. I, um, you know, I, I just like Dr. Peterson, I thought about my my whole academic career, if you will, starting from, um, you know, say elementary and high school up through graduate school. Um, you know, I went to, to high school in Detroit, so you know, I had I had black teachers and um, you know, male and female, um, which you know, I recognize as, as perhaps something for someone my age is, is not always the case. Um, in, in undergraduate school, I went to Florida A&M University. Um, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a rattler. And, um, you know, I had black professors, um, many of them, most of them. I think I had one Japanese professor um, and one white male professor, but, but by and large they were all black. Um, African-American and um, of Caribbean and other, you know, African descent. So. Once I got to graduate school, I went to grad school at UC Berkeley. Um, I I <laughs> I tried to do my due diligence. I you know, but I can safely say that I did not have any um, non-white professors. So they were they were all white. Uh, at Berkeley, uh, classmates? Did you have black classmates, or were they all white? Uh, class- in terms of classmates at at Berkeley. Um, they were not all white. I had one black classmate from, from time to time, um, you know, maybe once or twice. Um, I had classmates who were um, East Indian. Um, I had class, classmates who were Japanese, who were white American, who were South American. So it was a bit of a mix. Um, but, if you know, if we're talking about black students, um, you know, I can count with less than one hand of how many of them I actually had in the classroom. Mm, wow. Somewhat, some, although the HBCU uh, experience, certainly that's radically altered. You get to see lots of black classmates and professors and everybody there. That's uh, right on. HBCU representation. Oh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> right on. Go Rattlers. Okay. Um, let's see. I, I saw a hand. I'll pause here to see if I think you have uh, at least one other co-author. Let me see if we can... Uh, I don't, I don't have a name, so I'm, I'm going to guess, uh, that the other, uh, co-author who is joining us, uh, this, I guess maybe could be going through my, my list here. Uh, we'll have to check in and see, cause I'm not sure it doesn't have an identifying name, but I even, even looks close to one of the folks up here. Let's see. Oh, is this Amanda K. Phillips DeLucas? Is it, is it her? Let's see. Yes, yes, that's correct. Uh, Points for uh, me. Good evening. How are you doing? Uh, Right poorly. Thank you for for joining our discussion. So let me give the title of your report in the series. I think uh, her report is number seven uh, in the series of eight. Uh, Oh, she has such a great quote. I have to read that one. Uh, The perils of participation, because we talked about definitions and words. Uh, I have to read that section from the report. The perils of participation. This is number seven in the series of eight. Uh, We have our uh, third co-author in this series with us. Uh, Again, Amanda K. Phillips, 
DeLucas. Uh, if you want to tell folks uh, who you are, the work that you do, and if you are classified as a white person. Sure. Um, I will start off. Um, my name is Amanda Phillips DeLucas. I am a white person. I live in the hyper-segregated city of Baltimore, although I'm not a native here. And all of my research uh, is located within Baltimore City. Um, I uh, wrote the piece for the Metropole on um, early participatory practices that were utilized by urban planners, architects, landscape architects, in an attempt to co-design spaces around the highways. Um, but I'm, I have a PhD in a really kind of weird field called science and technology studies. So I consider myself more of a historian of technology. And as the conversation this evening has been going on, um, I've been really drawn to the, uh, the ways that uh, you keep um, bringing home the point of explicit supremacy. And I think my work in many ways looks at implicit supremacy. So the ways that um, decisions get programmed into the technologies around us and create a segre uh, segregationist effects. For instance, um, uh, interstates had limited egress and ingress. So um, where you could exit and couldn't exit, they made it very, very difficult for uh, incorporating bus routes into them. Uh, similarly, if we think of plans as technologies, um, they, they are used as tools to enact certain effects and sort of hide the uh, explicit white supremacy that guides these practices. So a lot of my work, I think, is trying to really draw attention to how technologies uh, shape and code and hide um, these uh, the very detrimental effects uh, within urban spaces. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, wow. Okay. Let's see. I want to, I guess if you could maybe give a little bit of context uh, for the piece that you submitted to Metropole about this particular uh, portion of, I guess this is Highway 40 in Baltimore, the perils of participation, some context for this report? Sure, of course. So um, Baltimore City uh, is a small city on the East Coast, and um, we have a very incomplete highway system. And part of that highway system is a 1.32-mile uh, sunken interstate that bisects Harlem Park to the north and uh, Franklin Square to the south. These are uh, historically redlined uh, communities, and at the time that the highway was built, populated majority with um, lower-income black families, communities, and businesses. Um, U.S. 40 is pretty much the only stretch of interstate that got built within the city. There is a, an above-ground um, interstate that goes right into the central business district um, that sort of goes over a, a river. But um, U.S. 40 was really the only bit of the highway that got built, and it got built through black communities. Um, what... It, when we read historically about the urban interstate struggles that happened in the city of Baltimore, in some cases it is described as a success story um, because the whole highway did get stopped. Um, but this is clearly not a success story. This is clearly a case of 
um, many people being dispossessed and forcibly removed from their homes in the name of urban interstate building. Um, so when I uh, when I started doing this research in relation to my dissertation, I really wanted to dig into the activists who fought against the highway. And a very different story began to emerge in that the black activists who were working in Baltimore, although they partnered with um, white and different ethnic um, groups in the city, um, were not demanding so much that the highway not be built. Instead, they were uh, demanding um, uh, things like parks. They were demanding fair compensation. And more specifically, they were demanding a place in the city in the event of their relocation. They wanted to remain in Baltimore. They wanted to remain tied to their community. And they wanted um, to be able to continue to participate in the life of the city. Um, and I, I think that these demands are really important as we look to the future of infrastructure investment and spending. When we think about who and how we prioritize um, in our in new policy decisions. I thought you, uh, this is really important for a number uh, of reasons. This is a, a specific portion uh, where you talk about some of the activists uh, who, I guess, participated in Baltimore and trying to fight back against the interstate being built and, and destroying some of their housing. So you talk about <clears throat> one of the organizations that was involved in the project, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, uh, and how some of the black activists, they went to work with some of these folks. So I'll read a little bit just to give context. Uh, you write, their offices also became a place for residents to immerse themselves in and learn from the language of highway planners and engineers, mostly white people. Soon, highway activists began using this newly acquired knowledge in public hearings to refute the technical merits and justifications of the highway. The emergence of such tactics among Baltimore's many highway activist groups led Joseph Axelrod, chief of the Interstate Division of Maryland, to accuse the design team of using their position to support the enemy. That word again. And at least in my view, when you see a word like this again, I thought we're talking about U.S. citizens. And here it would be citizens, maybe homeowners or business owners who might be displaced and not compensated. And it's not, oh, man, sympathizing. It's they're talked of as enemies. And why are you helping the enemies? That's what I mean when I say this worked exactly how it's supposed to. And the language of enemy seems to be very explicit in terms of what we're talking about and how we feel about these people. Would you think, doctor? Yes, indeed. And um, academic named Sidney Wong did a very fantastic article that really dives into the practices and the history of um, the Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill team. Um, they were called the Urban Design Concept Team, who worked um, on this project and sort of the controversy that emerged both in the press and in the public about their attempts to work directly with activists to stop highway development. And they were very much framed in the press and by policy leaders as exactly as you said, as aiding the en enemy, as providing them with knowledge, as providing them with um, very 
this this sort of very technical language that they would then bring to public hearings um, to refute claims made by the engineers. Um, the more subtle point I want to make in my argument is, is that technocratic language, it's a language of distance. It's a language that separates um, people from their experiences and it uh, sort of values the experience of living in a hyper-segregated area. Um, uh, it, it makes those experiences matter less in the public realm when, in fact, we need them to matter more in our policy decisions. That's, <clears throat> I think that's it's important just because as a black person, victim of white supremacy, there's so many examples of black people being devalued because, and the excuse will be, well, you're not educated enough and uh, you don't have, you don't speak correct English and that type of thing. So then if you go get informed and get correct technology and I'll use all the sophisticated urban terminologies, wait, hey, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> Where have you been getting this from? Stop educated like, dang, which, <laughs> like, which, I'm going to lose either way. It doesn't matter. We're in it. Okay. Enemies. Got it. That's what I mean about this is not an example of things not working correctly. These interstates terrorizing, displacing black business owners, black homeowners. This was exactly what was supposed to happen to enemies. And again, at the time, in the context of civil rights movement, Brown v. Board of Education, all that. Oh, yeah. Enemy combatants for sure. Hooligans out of here. Uh, same question uh, that I've asked to all of our guests, participants uh, thus far, uh, to uh, Amanda Phillips DeLucas. Uh, in your report, your analysis of Baltimore, are there good guys classified as white? No. Uh, no, and yes. Um, I, There are positives in Baltimore's highway story, not the impact, but the larger coalition building. And as you read through the archives of the different geographic community organizations working together, I think you see real attempts between the groups at um, – attempting to foreground the experiences of those most harmed. And I would be doing a disservice to the history if I didn't mention the activists who tried as hard as they could to make sure that no road got built. Um, now, these are not only white people or white bodies, um, but there were genuine efforts at making sure those who stood to be most harmed um, could have their voices heard in different realms. And that's a part of the history that's worth documenting. Why was your initial response no? Because I think we frame these arguments most of the time um, with the heroes or uh, the good guys being engineers or planners, um, and I, I I don't know if the as 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 our other guests this evening have talked about 
these their practices are so embedded in the structures of supremacy that it makes it hard to uh, call them by name. But I think when we look at the grassroots efforts and the people trying to make a difference in the city, um, we saw genuine attempts at trying to build better urban futures. <laughs> mm. Context of white supremacy, uh, same questions I've asked everyone uh, in your career uh, in urban planning, uh, going back to when you were a student. Can you remember uh, how many black classmates you've had and then how many black instructors you've had? Sure. Uh, I want to clarify, I don't have an urban planning background. I have a very interdisciplinary education career. Um, as an undergrad, I um, had quite a few black classmates, although it was small and in a uh, uh, very New England environment, so dominantly white. Um, I had two black professors as an undergraduate, and beyond that, um, uh, no one else. The more I moved up in my academic career, um, the less exposure and in-classroom experience I had um, with um, black classmates, students, and professors. Very common in a system of white supremacy. That also, I would say, is not an oops, not an accident. Very deliberate. I've been saying the whole time, massive resistance. The context of this discussion is uh, keeping black children out of school. So, of course, uh, that's going to be the end result. You do not see black people up at the upper echelons of the academy all by design. Uh, let's see. Uh, I wanted to make sure because I said we had questions. So for folks, if you are listening in, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, three of our authors hanging out with us for the evening. Uh, Dr. Amanda Phillips DeLucas, uh, Dr. Tierra Bills. Uh, and Sarah Jo Peterson, Ph.D. I guess I could have said doctor, too, but I started saying Sarah Jo <laughs> Peterson, Ph.D., but same thing. They know she's got a doctorate. I don't. Uh, those three folks uh, are with us. You can take advantage uh, and ask a question. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61. If you have a question, uh, let's see, retired firefighter in Florida, Florida got lots of mention uh, in D.B. Connolly's book. Awesome. A world more concrete all about Florida. Retired firefighter. If you have a question for our uh, guests, you should be with us, sir. Yes, sir. I do have I have two questions. Uh, 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 greetings to the uh, guests also. Uh, question one. Uh, and I just sent it to you, Gus, uh, about uh, the Nazi party and how Adolf Hitler uh, gained some sort of advantage politically uh, for the Autobahn, which was a highway uh, through, I'm assuming, Germany. Uh, uh, and can any one of the guests talk on that? And, uh, and also uh, any, any of the guests' uh, understandings of I-95 uh being constructed through the uh the uh black uh quote unquote 
neighborhood in South Florida? Those are two questions. Hmm. All right. Uh, so Hitler's construction of the Audubon to gain some sort of uh, advantage, World War II, and then construction of I-95 uh, in Florida. Same thing that we've been talking about to terrorize, displace uh, lots of black people in South Florida. Uh, did uh, any of our guests want to respond to those two questions? And also the possible correlation between what what the Nazi party was doing and, and here. Well, I can, this is, this is Sarah Jo. Um, I'm not going to be, pretend to be an expert in Audubon, but the, there is definitely a connection that President Eisenhower did. He obviously was leading the troops in Germany. He was familiar with it. He understood what it was and, and he brought that knowledge back when he's president. Oh. Okay, because Eisenhower was a uh, one of the top uh, military officials representing this part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Anybody else? I would also chime in here just to mention that uh, this is perhaps um, a myth where there is some some truth to it, and that the building of interstates did serve the purpose of transporting military commerce and um, vehicles. Um, But that narrative is also very built into the idea of highways being a a symbol of American um, uh, exceptionalism. So um, it's a lot about the mythology of what highways do, what they were for, and who they served. Um, so that legacy and inspiration is definitely there, but in some ways the military narrative distracts from the actual impacts on the ground. And I would agree with Amanda on that one. The military deaths, they become the defense highways in 56, but the military aspect is both much older it's the military was always interested in moving troops around and equipment around. So it goes back to the 1920s, but that wasn't the purpose of the interstate. The military wanted, the military wanted in, but the military was not the driving reason why we built them. If that makes sense. Uh that brings me to another question. It, uh, is it, uh, uh, am I correct or incorrect into thinking that the uh, U.S. Army engineers had anything to do with uh, expressways? Yes, they did. They were very interested in the technology, especially so because they they actually helped, but they were interested in how to build them, how to because they were leading. This is the Marshall Plan. This is the post World War II. They were leading um, technology worldwide, <laughs> so they were interested in how to build them. They were interested in supporting 
Americans learning how to build them. They always have been. And through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, so they were active participants in how to build them, but not necessarily how to plan them. That one I don't know as well. But like the construction, like like literally how to build them, like how to build concrete, how to build asphalt. They've always been interested in that. Okay. Did anyone, uh, or I, you all, it might not be your area of expertise, but the uh, I-95 in Florida, I uh, know I, I, where I want to say, I'm pretty sure NDB Connolly discusses that in a world more concrete. <laughs> like, I would bet money. I would just need to go grab the book really quick and look through the index, but I'm pretty sure he does. Did it, I-95, or is that beyond uh, folks' realm of knowledge, research?
um, a different, I guess, group of individuals doing these things, but I think that it was a mixture of so many things that, you know, fall under this umbrella of of, um, of systemic racism. You had, you know, personal, um, oh, sorry, individuals who um, had racist views against, um, you know, the black community, and, you know, this fueled sort of their activities and their decision-making, but also, you know, if we think about the ways that policies are created um, or, you know, regulations are created, is in part, you know, created or influenced by um, sort of the popular opinion or um, sort of the social climate. And so I think that, you know, in my opinion, you have all of these things working together and it just creates the perfect storm for, um, for you know, at this time, it created the perfect storm for this to happen. So that's what I would say. Okay. And, um, in all due respect, my question is really directed at the white guests, um, but I do understand what you're saying. Uh, the future, um, well, my second question, um, are you guys familiar with the public policy um, that they used in the Bevel of the Bronx in New York City, known as Plan Shrinkage? which is also deceptively called municipal de-investment? Uh, this is Sarah Jo. Not specifically, but as one of the white guests, um, when you're, you're on your first question, that I think, you know, white people make government racist. And so that's, you know, that's how government becomes racist, because white people make government racist. If you want to hold an institution with resources, though, accountable for what happened with the interstate, that is your state government, because they were the ones who bought the land, and your federal government, because they were the ones that picked up 90% of the cost. So, and I do think that there is a project to be done that holds the state governments and the federal governments accountable for what happened with the interstate. Well, can that be done without white people? Probably not. Okay. Uh, thank you for answering um, the first question and the second one. Um, and um, Earlier, I, I think the first guest you were talking to, guest, um, she says the federal government doesn't relocate people. Um, and that's kind of why I brought up Plan Shrinkage, because um, in the 70s, they relocated a whole bunch of white people to the suburbs, um, specifically in the Bronx. Over 400,000 white people just disappeared and end up in nice big houses outside of the Bronx. And um, I, I just wanted to say that I disagree with that. I think the federal government relocated a lot of white people. And I just want to know what she felt about that. I think the context of our discussion, this is recorded, so if my memory has failed, forgive, but I think it was we were saying in the context of the displacements, the federal government does not compensate for relocation. I think that's what we were saying in the context of this evening, but my, my memory could be uh, in error. Uh, I think that was when I was speaking with Sarah Jo Peterson, PhD, 
Um, where, do you recall, uh, were we discussing about compensation or was it just the federal government doesn't do relocation? Um, in 1956, the federal government, you could not use federal funds for relocation expenses. The state governments did it. And that's just for the interstates. And actually, it starts to change in the 60s. In the late 60s, they, the federal government agrees to let their money be used for relocation. So, And that's very specific about compensating people. So, like, if the government, if you're a renter, you didn't own the land, and the government, in the late 50s, you were just out of luck. By the 60s, the government would start to compensate you some for your moving costs and your relocation costs. That now, in a larger scheme of things, sort of metaphorically, the federal government does all sorts of things that help people move and um, and buy a house and buy and the government isn't necessarily relocating them, but they are helping them move, helping them buy their home, helping them helping them have a neighborhood with good schools and 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 um, or improving their schools. And they do all sorts of things to help build certain communities be better than others in, in terms of that. So, so in a larger sense, yes, the federal government does get involved. In the specific sense that we were talking about here, eventually they start compensating people who are displaced, if that answers the question. Yes, ma'am. Um, and that that was how I um, heard it. And the last, very last question. You know, thanks for the time, Gus. Um, the future of the United States. Um, several infrastructure upgrades are slated, um, which could be a smart highway system, high-speed rail, um, smart grids, smart cities. All of these things are on the the table. Um, do you think that this is going to lead to another? massive displacement of non-white people. And that's my last question. Thank you. This is Amanda, um, and I, I can speak a little bit to this. Um, I, I think, yes, if we continue on our path, um, especially if we continue to foreground um, smart technologies, um, that's a real potential. And um, we are seeing this in cities like D.C. and Baltimore and the sort of growing gentrification of our urban areas. Um, I, I think one of my motivations to contributing to this series um, was to demonstrate that our practices have histories that really bear on the feature of how we begin to make decisions going into um, this massive infrastructure investment that's hopefully on um, the table. And that could mean um, reinvestment. It could mean reparations. It could mean this really broad um, and um, perhaps equitable or more just understanding of what infrastructures and roads are. And um, that's a real potential here. Um, so it, for me, it's about learning from the history showing what we did wrong and hopefully coming up with new practices out of it. Um, but that's, you know, it, that's to be seen. Uh, much obliged, Thomas, in New York. That word uh, 
this is what was done wrong. To say again, in my view, I think the best way to understand this is this was what was done intentionally, deliberately. This was done correctly because this is exactly what we set out to do. Displace, dispossess black people. Context of white supremacy. Uh, We had uh, the actual person who discovered this series is a black urban planner by trade, no less. And he wanted to write in his questions because he thought he might get sidetracked and not be able to join us live. But he'll be listening to the archives with hopes of answers to his questions. Uh, he didn't know exactly which co-authors would be hanging out. So he wanted to address his questions specifically to Dr. Sarah Jo Peterson. But if uh, either Dr. Bills or Dr. DeLucas, if you all have a thought answer, feel free to share as well. So his questions in order of importance. Number one. <clears throat> Finally, this truth and accountability project and all subsequent reconciliation and reparative actions should be paid for out of the highway trust fund created for the interstate highway system in 1956. Though the interstate had a physical effect, the policies were attached to people while the solution seems to be attached to locations. What is to keep white people from taking advantage of potential efforts and programs to reconcile harm done to black people as white people gentrify back into cities causing black people to be dislocated due to rising housing costs that, yeah, and thank you for directing it at me um, I also would love to Tierra is talking about the land bridge so that comes specifically to this issue. I am worried, to be honest. I am I am worried that that as we reconstruct the interstates and make the cities better, that the that the power structure will reinscribe itself and white people will win and black Americans will lose. That um but there are techniques to to prevent that. Um so and one of them is one of the proposals that is being proposed in the federal government includes that this, whether they tear it down or whether they build a cap, that there a community land trust would be in charge of the redevelopment of the land around it and the amenities that are created with the reconstruction. And that is at least a technique. I hope it works. And, um, but we need to pay attention to how those techniques happen. Um, but one of the other ways we can do it, and Tierra can already spoke really eloquently to this, is when I said reparations should be paid for out of the highway trust fund, that also includes the individual. That, you know, we, it is possible historically to do what the study had done in St. Paul, that they can show what, they can show whether, how people were compensated, whether they were compensated adequately, and what we should have paid for right in the first place. And so there is an individual component, I believe, to reparations too. But the larger point is taken that, yes, we will be reconstructing every single of these interstates. They're at their end of their life. They need to be rebuilt. And we need not to repeat what happened. And, and we need to find a way to fight against what, what Gus has been calling intentional. We need to find and find a way to... And, to, to make sure the intentional doesn't happen and the systemic doesn't happen. Uh, Dr. Bills, uh, since this touches on your research in Minnesota with the Reconnect Rondo, did you 
want to contribute? Yeah, I would just offer that. I mean, I, I totally agree with with what Dr. Peterson just said. Um, and you know, if I can take this to just a, a sort of broader um, interest of mine, this is the whole reason why I work in this space is to um, to learn about you know these types of activities that, that have happened in the past. Learn about how. Um, how vulnerable and black communities are currently affected by the hundreds of millions of dollars in spending on, on transportation improvements. And so, you know, like we, we, we can, we certainly, you know, this, this focus of, of this series is on the interstate highway system, but the reality is that we're spending so much money, um, public dollars on transportation improvements. We need to understand how they affect vulnerable communities and black communities. Um, we need to, understand the types of projects um, that would help to mitigate these issues where we can improve accessibility, which is the goal, um, but to combat these equity issues where, um, where black and low-income communities and other vulnerable communities are made to be worse off, you know, for the sake of the common good. And so this is why I'm, you know, in this space. Um, I hope to, um, to help produce the next generation of engineers, planners, um, and, and thinkers in general, um, policy thinkers, um, with a with a, a understanding, a clear understanding of, of how these things can happen and how to work against them, how to work against these powers. Hmm. Uh, our <clears throat> investor, his second question, he says, indeed, just as Sweet Auburn declined the fortunes of black Atlantans able to integrate the mainstream rose. In the aftermath of local and national civil rights victories during the 1950s and 1960s, black Atlantans made advances, particularly in business and politics. Doesn't this statement seem contrary to the declines in black business ownership even with the increase in black politicians. Dr. Peterson, I think this one's for you. <laughs> that um well, the piece on Sweet Auburn was written by a fantastic young historian, Dr. Danielle Wiggins. And um, so she's the expert on Atlanta, and she's not able to be with us tonight. So, um, so I don't want to speak to the specifics of something that I don't feel confident answering. Right on, Danielle Wiggins. Hers is uh, the fourth uh, in the installment of eight piece number four, remembering sweet. Auburn before the expressway, what nostalgia reveals about the limits of post-war liberalism. Incidentally, uh, I used to live in Atlanta and I can say that I walked uh, Auburn. Uh, in fact, the King Center for people who haven't been to Atlanta, uh, the Dr. King Center and all that where his uh, the burial coffin, everything that's on Auburn. So I walked it when I read her report. I was like, oh, my gosh, it is like that, <laughs> like uh, dark. Or at least it was. Maybe they've, you know, greatly improved things, but dark, 
creepy, the feeling of unsafeness and just knowing that it was not that way always, uh, that way before that the interstate that was constructed contributed greatly to the feeling of unsafety. And this is not a neighborhood and not a place that you want to hang out and feel welcome like that. Talk about personal impact, huge personal impact, and especially getting a understanding for the history of how these things came to be. Uh, his last question that he wrote in, let's see, hopefully this will be about yours. Uh, Schwartz's interview of AASHOS's Johnson is the source of the infamous quote on getting rid of in Niggertown to explain why some city leaders wanted the interstates. It's not often suspected racists get caught saying the N-word nowadays. Instead, it is correct to look at the historical outcomes to judge the intent of white transportation professionals based on the harm they caused even if they themselves are unaware of the history question another way of saying it when do unintended consequences become intended consequences Uh, this is Amanda. I will say very briefly, um, in my research on Baltimore, which is separate from the quote you just shared, um, a lot of the early reports, one of which was written by Robert Moses, uh, while the language is slightly coded, um, it, it's not incredibly so. And so we can look at these documents and understand that the intention was to remove um, black people um, and communities from cities. Um, it might have been called uh, slum clearance. It might have been called blight. But these terms are in the documents, and we can see intent clearly um, as we look in the archives. Um, and so it, it's there. It's, the, it's there. Got one response, Dr. DeLucas. Uh, Sarah Jo Peterson, PhD, did you have a response to this final question? I think I agree with Amanda that that the the research that needs to be done and there needs to be a lot more research done on this, because this happened as you, you know, in so many cities, that that will reveal itself. That um, there was nothing unintended about any of this in the sense that they anticipated everything. So that that some of it was more overt than others, but they anticipated all the problems and they chose to do nothing. And you can't wave your hands and say something's unintended when you anticipate a problem and you choose to do nothing. Hmm. Hopefully those answered or, or satisfied his questions. Uh, much obliged non-Clemson grad for writing in your questions in advance. Uh, I wanted to make sure I got in a question uh, before we wrapped up. This is, I guess, not directly uh, about the highway system, but it's still directly, in my view, related to racism, white supremacy. Uh, Sarah Jo Peterson, Ph.D., she has a separate report, American Demography 2030, Bursting with Diversity, Yet a Baby Bust in Urban Land Magazine. And this it stuck out to me just because there have been so many reports that I've seen, especially of late uh, talking about fertility rates and drops in fertility rates uh, over the past 
decade or more and what this means for the future and lots of hand wringing the book we talked about countdown uh that just came out not that long ago they were talking a lot about that as well and judith and Layson's book uh and then they talked about the impact from the covid19 situation and saying that that's even contributing more as opposed to people being clumped up inside and having babies and such opposite way financial insecurity and prompting people to be even more hesitant uh, about having children, especially at a young age. Uh, my question, uh, I guess everybody can respond to this one. Uh, if if this sort of thing is happening and, and you even in your in this report, uh, Sarah Jo Peterson, Ph.D., you write uh, business models or I can make sure I give a little bit more. Uh, the built environment has always been the stage on which America's complex racial dynamics play out. The built environment shapes people's understanding of home, neighbor, customer, colleague, teammate, employee, citizen, taxpayer, mentor, friend, and enemy. I'm just adding the last one since that's one of our words for the day. (laughs) Enemy. Business models that primarily attract tenants, customers, or workers who are predominantly white and and under 35 will be facing shrinking markets. Government policies affecting immigration, education, workforce development, and the support of young families will also come to the fore. Uh, They've talked about this having lots of younger non-white people and a graying white population. Uh, Some folks, including the late Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she termed this white genetic annihilation, that she will have a lot of vicious white response to this uh, in all manner of racism, white supremacy, that there's not going to be any jolly let's work together and embrace our new demographic future, that this will fuel an intense, uh, I guess, justification to make sure that white supremacy, racism endures. What do, and I guess this would be great to get a response from all three of you to kind of wrap up. Uh, What do you all think, given your research, what could be the response from individuals classified as white, given the demographic changes that are projected? Yeah, I've, this is Sarah Jo. Um, I wrote that piece in 2015, and I have to say I was so naive when I wrote it. Um, I didn't, and and I was naively hopeful. And then, of course, 2016 happened, and 2017 happened, and it keeps happening. And I'm really afraid for our country. That, um, but um, yes, I would agree with the concerns that white people do not know how to adapt to a multicultural society. That's uh, Sarah Jo Peterson, PhD, uh, Dr. DeLucas, Dr. Bills, your thoughts? This is Amanda. This is so far outside of my realm of expertise that uh, I can't comment beyond saying that uh, economic insecurity is a a background pulse to this as well and um, uh, especially for millennials and the younger generation expected to contribute to those demographics so um, so we will see what the future holds (laughs) Dr. DeLuca Dr. Dr. Bills this is uh, 
this is yeah, this is here. I um you know, saying this is quite far outside of what I studied, but um what I would say is that, you know, the two thousand sixteen election, you know, has proven um, you know, how fragile um many Americans are, how insecure they are and how, you know, those things lead them to, you know, believe things that are simply not true um, uh, with regard to, um, you know, the intent of, of persons traveling into the country, immigrants, um, and, and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would I would agree to, with, um, with, with, with Dr. Peterson. Right on. Uh, we have been discussing, so this is, again, this is an eight-part series uh, on the Metropole, uh, the myth and truth about interstate highways. Uh, we had three of the folks uh, who contributed to the series. I would say check it out, read all eight parts. Uh, it's lots of information about lots of different parts uh, of the U.S., Baltimore, Minnesota, Alabama, Georgia, Learn quite a bit uh, about racism, white supremacy uh, in general. Uh, Wisconsin, and quite a few, quite a few. Texas, uh, you'll learn quite a bit about racism, white supremacy, and see lots of similarities. Uh, the folks that we've had with us hanging out today, uh, Dr. Tierra Bills, uh, you can see her segment uh, about what's happening in Minnesota, the Reconnect Rondo project. Uh, we had Amanda DeLucas, uh, you can see her project. Uh, it's, I think, number seven uh, about the situation in Baltimore uh, that we talked about today. Uh, and then the first report in the segment, uh, the myth and the truth about interstate highways. Uh, Sarah Jo Peterson, Ph.D. Uh, very important topic. Lots of folks are talking about this across the country, uh, hopefully added to folks better understanding about this as they move forward. Hopefully, if anything, use correct words, correct terms. Very important when we speak about this subject matter moving forward. Uh, thank all three of you uh, so much for hanging out, enjoying or sharing a little bit of your uh, Tuesday evening with us. I uh, hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Thank, thank you. you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For sure, for sure. Enjoy the rest of your evening. We will keep an eye out on uh, all three of your work as we move forward. Thanks so much. Take excellent care, and we will be in touch. Evening to all of you. Context of white supremacy. Wow, that is like a lot more work because we normally we don't have like three people on at the same time. Uh, so it's, it's a lot more work uh, when you have three different people to try to manage and, and talk into and that sort of thing. Sarah Jo Peterson, PhD, she was the first person that I contacted. So that was why I was, she was kind of the lead person in all of it, but always grand to be able to get additional uh, scholars who have some expertise on a specific uh, subject matter to uh, share and discuss uh, with all the talk that we had this evening about uh, good people, particularly good people who are classified as white uh, the admitted racist Zach Casey. He was at the White Privilege Conference way back, ancient history, 2010, on uh, his discussion uh, about the impossibility of positive white identity. Very important uh, interview for 
tonight's conversation uh, where he talked about that, that the white privilege conference, that was another place where they'll John Brown this and they'll uh, bring up like Ann Braden and Cheney uh, Schwerner. Uh, they'll bring them up. It'll be lots of different, well, not lots because it's not a lengthy list, but they'll bring up certain individuals who are supposed to be the good white people. Zach Casey admitted racist. I don't even say Zach Casey, good white person. I say Zach Casey admitted racist. 2010 April 2010 no less in the archives where we talked about the impossibility of positive white identity we'll take a quick pause be right back folks have thoughts that they would like to share information that they heard on the broadcast we'll do so Uh, we will be right back just uno momento let's see And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give him some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, It's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way. And indirectly see ourselves that way. context of white supremacy check out mr fuller produce justice.com we will be here tomorrow dr ruby lathan again i said it's lots of different ways you can think about you know the information that you've heard today or regularly on the context of white supremacy uh but in terms of uh these consecutive broadcasts today tomorrow wednesday you could think about it health 
the health ramifications because they have a lot of info within the eight series report and about this topic in general, the use of the interstate highways to displace black people. That has a huge health impact. We talked about that in Harriet A. Washington, a terrible thing to waste when they put black people next to uh, the, the bus depot and they put the five lane interstate highway next to your house and all of that. Then you end up, wow, why do all the Negroes have asthma and all of these other problems, hypertension and immune systems are messed up? Why, why is that with, oh, yeah, yes, yes. We put them in the dilapidated area. That's what's supposed to happen. Not by, not by accidents. This is not a oops, a whoops. This was all intended. But you could think about these uh, today and tomorrow as health ramifications. Tomorrow, Dr. Ruby Lathan, eating well, trying our best, because even sometimes they put you in an area where you might have to hop on the interstate to get to the grocery store. It's not going to be you got a grocery store that's a block, three blocks away from where you live. at. It's going to be the grocery store is 50 miles from you unless you want to eat Cheetos and Big Macs, you know. Be back 24 hours. Uh, In the meantime, just a few, I guess, points about uh, some of what was discussed on the uh, broadcast today. I I cannot emphasize. I think this is very important uh, in terms of viewing because I don't I did not growing up. I didn't hear people talk about the U.S. highway system uh, as this is a structure of white supremacy racism. And this was used to displace over a million people, most of them non-white people, black people. I did not hear it discussed in that manner. I didn't hear most non-white people discuss it that manner or putting it together that you would have all these different compilations of incidents from all over Texas, Minnesota, California, New York, Alabama, where you can just keep going to looking at it in that. And then, as I said at the very beginning, this is the same thing as James Lowen sundown towns. You can be more efficient as opposed to you have to round up all the white women and white men and white children and they get guns and slingshots and sticks and all the rest of it and pitchforks and axes and guns and we go out and all right, we get liquored up and, you know, we spend a week or a day and fuss and and get out of here. No coons allowed and we do all that. Okay, so we kill them and get them all out and then we take the property and all that. Like I said, that's Neanderthal. It's just... Property tax. Hey, you, you're behind on your property taxes. Got to go. Sorry. We don't have to do all that running around and shooting. Takes a long time to get dirt. You're behind on your property taxes. Got to go. Nice and orderly. No documentary about that. Got it clean. You probably won't even figure out that we, you know, been manipulating the property taxes. Remember that one? The black people in Michigan play, paying way more incorrect property taxes than you find out after the fact, after you've already lost the property. We got lots of different ways so we can do it property tax or we got to put a highway here eminent domain yep 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 serve the greater good got to put a highway here sorry somebody got to have losers gonna be you this time sorry all different forms of the same thing dislocation what is it keep those squatters on the move we have lots of different ways of making sure that the niggers we can get them moved when we want and in the context of this is Dr. King and Malcolm X getting on our nerves every day in Rosa Parks. I'm not going to move from the bus and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Highways. Matter of fact, that was right in the report. I told you I read that on uh, Saturday where it was uh, in Alabama. 
Edie, Nixon, and Rosa Parks. They got on my nerves. Yeah, let's put a highway down. Blow up their house. Yeah, yeah, that's what we'll do. It's not by uh, accident. Same thing with the good white people uh, that we discussed. I think we had some significant uh, chuckles, laughter uh, within the broadcast today even even the the emphasis within this subject matter to find good white people because that's not exactly phrasing terminology that's used in any of the reports good white people but the amount of time spent digging out these so-called good white people whatever that's supposed to mean and whatever you do if you say we shouldn't do this because niggers will be harmed or we should try to do better or whatever it is forming some sort of uh, relationship ideas about how this place should look in the future whatever that means in a system of white supremacy I found that you can be classified as white and do all of that and still practice racism and again the problem is still here so I don't know how much worth one is to place on locating a so called good white person while the system still exists again whatever you mean when you say good white person Uh, anything else I want to make sure touch on that I think is important the health ramifications we talked about that we'll be able to discuss that uh, more tomorrow I can I can say I did not know about some of that history in Atlanta even though as a former Atlanta resident I didn't become a history buff uh, about all of the local and state politics of Georgia while I was hanging out there but I for sure walked down Auburn Street and they have a piece uh, that Danielle Wiggins she wasn't with us but she's a black female she wrote this segment she's at the University of uh, California IT I believe Uh, And she talks about how it disrupted so much and caused the general sense of decay uh, along this area. And again, this is right where the King Center is, right? You would think this is would be one of the most polished areas of Atlanta. Not at all. It's totally one of those. Oh, man, run. You don't want to be here late at night, maybe in early in the day. You don't want to be here like, man, be alert. What's happening around you? And exactly. They write about it where the interstate overpass is it does create this like dark shadowy place where at night you would be kind of concerned like man is somebody hanging out to you know attack us or what like not get not by accident when you have white pe- generations of white people they're the ones who get to plan and control the design of the city and how space is going to be used these type of things can be expected I'll pause there. Uh, other, any other folks that joined us have thoughts, observations on what they heard, our guests uh, that we had with us, anything they wanted to make sure they got in? Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I, I uh, basically got my uh, questions answered, but... Uh, in the aftermath of uh, everything, as I was continuously continue to listen, I was just thinking about uh, uh, the uh, the timeline, the period in timeline where most of this was going on. And correct me if I'm wrong, in and around after the battle that's called World War II, the, into the late 40s, uh, and the highlight was, I would say, the entire decade of the 1950s. Uh, I was a very, a, a baby, uh, in 1957, uh, and, you know, only about three years old by the early 1960s. But during that, during that time, 
you you had you had these situations where non-white black people were moving into homes and they were all together. You had a situation where you had the doctor, the lawyer, the teacher, the preacher, and you know the the quote unquote blue collar uh, workers. All of those people were within walking distance of one another, especially in the area where I grew up at. And uh, but at the same time, <laughs> apparently so, the global system of racist white supremacy, especially this part of the world, had control over all of that. Uh, uh, the, of course, you know there was problems when it came to uh, voting. There was going to be some restrictions with that. Uh, 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 but you still, I mean, although you you still had you still and you and you had you know during World War Two you had you had millions of black males who was in the military coming out of the military with the quote unquote GI Bill, so they had money to to get a house or to go to school, and uh, so you had crazy people like Megger Evers and his brother and whatnot that was uh, fighting against the, the political politics and whatnot that sort of thing and racism and white supremacy. So uh, the system of white supremacy had, had, had an antidote for, for that potential progress that was going on during that time. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, could have been, it could have been a doctor at a, whatever hospital. And, and of course, there was a lot of these cases, they had uh, black people had uh, hospitals that were specifically designed for non-white black people, hospitals, uh, uh, schools, you know, that sort of thing during that period of time and uh so the whole idea of of constructing an, an expressway was an ideal in a in a of course in a dastardly way <laughs> an ideal uh, uh 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 antidote without 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 the idea of being burdened with being called a racist <laughs> they built these things you know with with uh some sort of idea of saying, well, this is for some sort of improvement, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And uh, so I was just thinking about that, you know, thinking about that on, on the the potential here in one case. And then on the other hand, the idea of maintaining the system of racism and white supremacy uh, in the most, in, 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 a, in a refined way, in a very scientific, militaristic the refined way, uh, and it was in around that time. I'm pretty sure it was after that also, but I'm thinking about in my era on on when that was going on. And uh, yeah, that, those are my thoughts. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, let's see, caller in California. I said California right there in this as well. This is one of those. Certainly, this is. Oh man. That no count Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Florida. No. All over where the Negroes are, that's where we need to put the highway at. Caller in California, did you have commentary? Um, greetings, Gus, and greetings, um, callers and listeners. Uh, I wasn't able to um hear. I mean I joined um uh, very late so I missed the majority of um the speakers. Um but I, I would um was it mentioned um that um these um highways also being used um, potentially as a uh, means to um, practice um, direct violence against the non-white peoples in that area. Um, 
And also, um, I uh, was recently um, displaced um, from South Central Los Angeles. Um, and it happened um, the moment I saw um, white people um, jogging through the neighborhood is, is when um, shortly after that, um, it, it became um, quite unaffordable and um, to, to live there anymore. So um, race and white supremacy is um, very much alive and well in um, the area of economics and causing non-white people to have to use their time and energy to um, constantly um, be on the move, as um, the quote says. I mean, my line. Much obliged, uh, caller in California. Uh, the articles in the series, and I think at least the context of the conversation today, it was presented as this is just another form of uh, white terrorism. Uh, in fact, the title of uh, this is the one, two, three, second article in the series is titled The Interstate's Planned Violence and the Need for Truth and Reconciliation. So, yeah, that's pretty direct. Um, this one is talking about, uh, let me see, or not even a specific area, I don't think. Or I take that back. This one's talking about Alabama uh, specifically. And, and as I said, that, hey, Rosa Parks has got on our nerves. Let's build a highway over her house and knock that down, that type of a thing. But yes, uh, I think that's the way we talked about it today. And as I stated, the series regularly does. And uh, widespread, lots of different ways white people have. We can make it more expensive, property taxes. We can allow drug infestation to take over. Lots of different excuses that we can provide for why you will have to get out of here uh, and way more refined than having to just send, you know, a gaggle of white children that are no niggers here. We don't have to do it that way anymore. Refinement. Uh, per uh, retired firefighters uh, question, as I said, <clears throat> in D.B. Connolly, black male, excellent book, a world more concrete real estate and the remaking of Jim Crow, South Florida, Jim Crow, South Florida. Florida. He was a guest on the program way back in April 2015. Should be in the archives. He writes, It seemed like a good idea at the time. During the afternoon of 30th of July 1969, more than a thousand men and women and children gathered beneath Interstate 95 in the heart of Miami's Central Negro District. The occasion was a ribbon cutting ceremony for one of America's first under expressway parks over the previous year city officials and corporate corporate and individual donors cobbled together thirty thousand dollars to erect jungle gyms swings and other amusements on nearly five acres of what city planners had already deemed dead land playground equipment replaced hundreds of houses and apartments that state road bulldozers excuse me, that state road builders bulldozed just a few years earlier to make room for I-95. The park was the brainchild of the city's first black city commissioner, M. Athelie Range. The owner of three funeral homes and several rental properties, Range had become the most recent entrepreneur to assume prominence as the nominal leader of Miami's Negro community and that's in quotes here whatever that means a widow with children she was also notably the first woman to do so the city's under expressway park 
would bear Ringe's name and enjoy endorsements from an influential interracial coalition that included the city's mayor, several white city commissioners, and past and present heads of the local chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The city of Miami's Tourism Bureau took scores of photographs at the opening ceremony and later publicized the event in national news outlets. Shadowed beneath a bustling freeway, Mayor Stephen Clark spoke to residents of South Florida's poorest neighborhood with what was likely unintended irony. Miami does not have does not shove socioeconomic problems under the rug. Ha ha ha, the mayor assured, but in the spirit of enterprise, copes with them. Celebrants at the park's opening paid little attention to the new and already wilting grass which lay in some places right up against the legs of playground equipment. Somehow dry sod, hastily planted, was supposed to grow in weak soil and scant sunlight. No one would say that a similar expectation had been placed on Miami's poorer black children, even if the comparison seemed apt in the midst of underfunded schools, substandard housing, and minimal access to decent city services. Nor would anyone comment on the potential symbolism of a park that effectively rendered these kids invisible to travelers whisking above between the region's airports, beaches, and suburbs. Below that freeway, in one of the most spectacular year-round climates in America, the embodied future of black Miami looked up at a concrete sky. I will stop there. They have an illustration with it that features a bunch of black children underneath an expressway with ice and other trucks probably filled with white motorists scurrying to their locations while black children are underneath a concrete interstate. Oops. We discussed this in the archives in detail with the author, Indy B. Connolly, 2015. This book is very, very good. One of the better books, one of the best books I've uh, read about white supremacy racism. Obviously, it's local to Florida, but I mean, woof, it super applies to the, uh, the topic that we discussed today and white supremacy racism in general. If you are a Florida resident, this one for sure should be in your library. Like, wow, talk about local history like... NDB Connolly, a world more concrete with pictures. Uh, let's see. Uh, Irie in Louisiana, uh, if you had commentary to share, should be with us. Yes, hi. Um, good evening, everybody. Good evening, Gus. I didn't get a chance to uh, chime in sooner either, but um, I did want to say this. Um, I've been teaching my son over the years that you know who lives where based on uh, whether or not there are buses in the area. And not only buses, um, but sidewalks where you can actually convey by feet um, between different places. And, you know, obviously, if you need a car to even get across the street, it's not intended for pedestrians. Who most, more likely than not, doesn't have a car, you know, if they're in an area like that, probably non-white black people. 
But I did notice something interesting today, which also lends to as far as infrastructure or um, city planning. What they'll do in places where non-white people live, where there are buses, sometimes they'll make it where there's bus stops and sidewalks, but there are no crosswalks. So now these people have to literally fight and time themselves against traffic to cross the street. I And I visibly um, witnessed and assisted a non-white female, I think she was maybe three or four years old, after she was hit by a motorcycle. Her mom was trying to cross the street with her in a stroller, two other young children, and I guess a sibling that had some type of um, learning or intellectual disability. So that young man, um, actually he was pushing the stroller, and he was hit by the motorcyclist who was white, and um, the motorcyclist was thrown off the bike. But he was he was basically okay, but the young lady was in critical condition, and the young man was really hurt as well. But she she was just about dying. She had a severe head injury, so I helped like stabilize her head until help came. And when I went over to go see what was happening with the motorcycle, the the guy on the motorcycle, he was like, "What were they doing in the effing street?" And then I went back to my car, and somebody was like, he actually sped up a little bit um, when he saw them. So that's what I want to say about that. Thank you very much. I'm even lying. Much obliged, Irie. Um, man, that's awful. And and that's another one that's not a oops. Even, I mean, she included the, the portion about him speeding up, allegedly, you know, in this incident. But even if you know we just put that to the side for the moment uh these types of things where she gave us the context do you have a crosswalk do you have a sidewalk stoplights that type of thing infrastructure when you do the design for the city do you have these sort of things uh even speed bumps you might think twice about accelerate, particularly if you're on a motorcycle. Like, we, I don't think you're going to do any accelerating recklessly if they got speed bumps in the area. Let me slow down. Man, don't want to kill myself. Those types of things that go to ensure the safety, especially got children. I can, the area where I live, whew, now in Seattle, like, my goodness, they have uh, about 80 billion Black Lives Matter signs in the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the thing that lets you know woo, safety, they have about a dozen of those. Twenty is enough, uh, and the things would slow it down. Slow it down. Show even the little uh, reflector where it looks like a child is running in the street, but it's just a silhouette of a reflector. Lots of those. Slow it down. Sidewalks. Slow it down. Slow it down. Safety. People who matter live here and gusty that's the sense that you get that generally you're not going to see that as frequently in areas that warehouse a lot of individuals who are classified as black like no not going to be tons of sidewalks and quiet that sort of thing where you can think dr was you say that in washington dc she talk all the time about man the importance you need to have quiet so your brain computer can think so you can process information and try to solve problems better understand the world in which we live you have to be able to quietly think 
hard to do that in areas where it's traffic zooming by and motorcycles zooming by the front door and all the rest of it. You can't even cross the street without hazard. Like that's again, these are not whoops. This is not oops. All by design. Uh, let's see. Any other folks that have comments here they need to get in before we wrap things up? Grand, uh, we should be here uh, tomorrow. I am going to make certain to ask Dr. Lathan about prostate health. Uh, we had uh, Andrew in the UK asked about that uh, this past Sunday, so we'll make sure if she has any uh, diet tips, things to eat, things not to eat, uh, in order to promote health, uh, prostate health. I think he was saying specifically a lot of black males uh, ended up with prostate. Uh, prostate cancer and prostate problems as they age. So diet, can't say that enough. Diet, eat lots, fresh fruits, vegetables, so important. If you're around younger people, try to model that as best you can. It is so important. That's part of the design too. A lot of times they'll have us uh, a warehouse living in areas where it'll be difficult to access quality produce, healthy, fresh fruits, vegetables, that sort of thing try as best you can to make that a regular part of your routine what you eat and even talking to your children about that because it's crucial aspect we will need vitality vitality there we go health and energy to solve this problem i hope the broadcast for today was worthy of your time and energy uh lots to research in fact i would say for anybody uh regardless it wouldn't really matter what state you're in retired firefighter we already got one for him a world more concrete Research the highway system in your part of the U.S. See what you'll find. That seems like one for sure. Rich, lots of, and you can have fun with it. Now, are there any good white people in South Florida who tried to stop this I-9, I-95 monstrosity? Or are the only good white people going to be the ones who we came and helped put down some wilting grass so you could have a playground underneath the highway are those the only good white people see what you find regard we got people california michigan south carolina research the highway system in your area see what you find even if you have older uh, black people who live in the area if you have some family members or even older black people that you know uh, and they've lived in that area, uh, let's see, back to the 60s. So they might have to be closer to Mr. Fuller's age or maybe a little younger, 70s, 60s, 80s, somewhere in there. Ask them, like, were you were you around here uh, when they were constructing the highway system? Do you remember anything? Did black people have to move? Do you remember any, you know, hubbub, conflict uh, about this going down? Ask could be a very rich source of learning about white supremacy racism that you can share with your offspring might be some you can go talk to some people or do some tours or get some books or all kinds of things who knows check out even the newspaper when uh, the library is open might be something where they have lots of newspaper documentation of when this was happening if there were protests meetings of that nature something to study let us know what you find studying the local history u.s highway systems and the impact on black non-white people in your region we'll be back tomorrow dr lathan sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy 
Uh, man, Rachel, I mean, we already got a lot to contend with. Keeping our brain, computer and body in general working and healthy. Top priority. They'll, they'll put the highway right and blast it right through the, your neighborhood, turn down all the places where black people live and everything else. And then the only structure they'll put up will be a liquor store or some nonsense like that. In addition to being sober, uh, if you are going to go out, I would be very alert about what's happening around you. Uh, if it looks like somebody's being hostile, especially in the U.S., you should be thinking this person may be armed. It is not a good time for just random verbal confrontations with strangers. If you're out in public, I would exit. You should be thinking if this person is being hostile and loud, they may be armed. In fact, they may be with a whole cadre of folks who are armed and ready for violence. If you didn't leave your residence, prepare to kill and or die. Exit. Uh, this is not a good time to just be engaging in confrontations with strangers. All of that said, if you're in your vehicle, if you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, we need all of our attention Let's be alert. Uh, and we're trying to minimize contact with race soldiers, the Mark Furmans of the known universe, just doing the small things we can to stay safe. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. No name calling, very easy means of working against this system. Uh, man. Gossiping right up there too, not gossiping, but I mean, minimizing conflict with non-white people, whew, super important. Uh, we will need all of our strength and vitality for other things, not grappling with and fighting other victims of white supremacy. Minimizing conflict, no name calling, no gossiping, small things that we can do that will have a big impact. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.